Okay, Hebrews uh, 12, uh, 23. There was a lot of concepts in this one passage, so I want to make sure we covered them all. We did, we did the roll book. Um, the firstborn idea probably is uh, thinking back to remember Esau selling his birthrights. And he was uh, called secular and immoral. And I preached a sermon on that, didn't I? I preached a whole sermon on that, uh, just on Esau and how the birthright that we have as Christians is everything provided for us by the true firstborn who is Christ, firstborn from the dead. And those who are in Christ participate in Christ's birthright, which is the entire inheritance that we have in Christ. And so the church of the firstborn would be everybody, obviously everybody in Christ. That's where you have inheritance rights because they're really, they all belong to Him. Now, the idea of being warned based on Esau was that if anybody apostatized, they would be despising their birthright and they would be secular, as we saw in that passage. World in heaven, we talked about that. God, the judge of all. And certainly brings back to mind the earlier warnings about judgment that we found in Hebrews, that God is indeed the judge and that he is one who sees all and knows all and who is perfectly just and righteous. God being the judge is a scary thing unless we have come to Christ for forgiveness. Otherwise, it's not, it's not a pleasant idea that God's the judge, but He is the judge. The spirits of righteous men made perfect would be the people who are already um, um, in heaven with Jesus Christ. Here's a quote from William Lane. Um, the assembly in view is an eschatological or heavenly gathering It is better, therefore, to recognize that the vision has reference to the ultimate completed company of the people of God, membership of which is now enjoyed enjoyed by faith. So he he thinks that ultimately it's the entire church um, that's in view um, at the end as they're all gathered. The The assembly of the firstborn is constituted of all those who ultimately will enjoy the privileges of the birthright, faithful men and women of both the Old and New Covenants who will comprise the firstborn citizens of heaven. By virtue of their faith, the members of the community addressed have come to the heavenly Jerusalem in the company of a vast multitude of believers from all ages. So that's the glorious privilege that we have as Christians. And these are realities that we need to be aware of and not to take lightly. All right, I think that um, I've been doing some reading of some excellent books lately by James Montgomery Boyce, and he has one called about What Happened to the Gospel of Grace. It's just a fabulous book. And it's just, what I appreciate is this Boyce was writing this book as he was, he died of cancer before it was even published. He died in the year 2000 at a relatively young age, and the book is just a, a beautiful, simple, but p- profound explanation of gospel issues. And what I was thinking about was, isn't it amazing that somebody as learned as that and who's had such a wonderful career, he fought the battle for biblical inerrancy in the 70s. Uh, he was, the, in fact, the, the head of that whole thing, that the, the Chicago statement that they had back in the 70s when the battle over the Bible was raging. Now there's no battle and people just gave up on it, I think. That's what happened. But anyhow, at the end of his life, here he is just sharing the glories of the gospel and and the benefits and privileges of being in Christ. And so I think that what happens is as you learn and grow, everything seems very, very complex. And and, and as a younger man, uh, as a pastor studying and exploring all the details, in which I love doing. When we get to his end of his life, here's a man who just sees the simplicity of the gospel as everything. Amen. And um, 
and recognizes the rich privilege that we have to participate. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is reminding these Christians of, is that this is no small thing. This is no nothing to just trifle about or get bored with or uh, take lightly because we're too busy trying to be successful in this world. But this is a wonderful, unbelievable privilege that we have to look into these things. Um, David Wells in his book, uh, two books, No Place for Truth and then God in the Wasteland, was writing about the idea of glory. And I've always cited Wells. In the 90s, those were my favorite books, those two that were written by Wells. That I thought they were the most profound books out in the 90s. And he was talking about the term glory. And the word from the Old Testament is, is from a word that means heavy. And the idea was that God's glory rests heavily upon us, that we take it as a weighty thing, that God is God. Okay, And um, what Wells said in uh, God in the Wasteland is that the problem we have in the modern church is the glory of God doesn't weigh heavily enough upon us because we take it lightly. We take lightly the blood of the covenant. We take lightly the privileges and glories of the gospel and the things of God. And um, to, to imagine that we would take all these things to shuffle them to the side and make our church all about entertaining the carnal-minded is, is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So may, may we take heavily the glory of God and may it rest upon us and on our congregation because we are in awe of the glorious things that he's done. Now, going on in the list of what we have come to, it says in Hebrews 12:24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So let's, um, as we talk about the blood of Jesus being better than the blood of Abel, let's start with thinking about the blood of Abel and what was that all about, and then make our comparison. Keith? The blood of Abel crying out for vengeance? Yeah. Yeah, remember it said in Genesis... Uh, actually, why don't you, Keith, look that up, Genesis 4, and a little story about 4.10, I think. I'll just read from 4. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Because of that, it goes on the next verse. Now you are cursed from the ground. Yep. So, Abel was the first martyr, right? He was, he, he's rightly considered a martyr because the reason he was killed was that he had faith in God. Remember it said in Hebrews 11 when we studied that, by faith, Abel... Offered a better sacrifice. So Hebrews tells us that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was offered in faith. And we also know that it was an animal sacrifice. Is that right? So uh, that was necessary for the, there to be shedding of blood. But he was God accepted him. And uh, Cain was told to repent. Remember? The, the sin is crouching at your door and you must master it. it his desires for you. But Cain wouldn't listen to God. He plugged his ears, refused to listen, and didn't repent. And then, consequently, he became a murderer and a, uh, the first one to make someone into a martyr. So, now here it says that, okay, the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. So, in what way would we think that the blood of Jesus is different than that? How does it speak better? Mercy. Yeah, what did you say? Mercy? Mercy? Yeah, so there's a, certainly a contrast there where the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance and the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. Even the blood of Abel was exposing Cain's sin and the blood of Jesus covers ours. Very good. I bet you we can think of other things. Go, keep thinking about it. Are there other ways that the blood of Christ speaks better than the blood of Abel? Well, there was a lot of bloodshed between Abel and Christ, and Jesus was 
the last blood was covered at all. Yeah, and it isn't that mentioned in the in the Gospels of the blood from Abel to Zacharias or something? Kathy. No, it would be his own blood, because that's what cried out. Because it uses the term speak here. And by the way, there's a play on that idea of speaking. If you look in our context here, well, I've been in this chapter so long, I'm getting dog-eared. I've got to get to a new chapter. i got coffee on there. I read my notes anymore. Okay, I talked about Esau in verse 18, verse 19, the blast of the trumpet. Okay, then the next verse is what I was looking for, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So now it talks about speaking, that God's word. Well, God, it actually, the book of Hebrews starts with that. God who spoke in times past in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, has spoken in these last days through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is, uh, and then it talks about uh, the glories of Christ. Yes? Talking about the blood, well, wasn't uh, the blood tainted uh, with sin and Christ pure? That's true. It, that's another, uh, Christ was sinless, and though Abel was a martyr, he was a sinner, so he couldn't really atone for anybody else. So the act of Jesus dying speaks. Okay. Um, so the sprinkled blood speaks. Yeah, it, 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 what that is, it actually is a personification. Because blood doesn't literally speak. So the type of literary device being used here is a personification. So that Abel's blood spoke and that Christ's blood speaks. Yes. Okay, that's true. But actually Cain killed Abel. And already then God was planning to send Jesus Christ. That's true. Amen. Amen. Okay, so now um, we have the speaking. Let's look up some cross-references. Uh, Exodus 24, 8. I got some new glasses. You know, there's one spot there I can see through. <laughs> you ever get those progressive, you know, and you kind of you fish around trying to see. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. My friend John George says, getting old is not for the faint of heart. If you don't have a lot of courage, you might want to die young. <laughs> because otherwise you've got some battles ahead. Matthew 23:35, Matthew 26:28, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and Carla, 1 Peter 1, 2. Because we had Keith do one. You got uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5? Okay, thank you. All right, so over here we got Exodus 24, 8. 24, 8. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Okay, so the words of the old covenant are ratified with the blood concerning these words. This is the blood of the covenant. That, that terminology is also used in the New Testament when Jesus at the Last Supper said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, so blood ratifies a covenant. So the blood of Jesus ratifies the new covenant and the words that attend that new covenant. Now, talking about the new covenant, see, we're talking about here Jesus being the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So this, we're talking about a blood covenant that was ratified through Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. All right? So now the prophecy about that is found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their hearts will I write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Okay, so the words of the Old Covenant, originally written, the short version was written on stone, right? On the Ten Commandments. 
and the tablets of stone, and they're called ten words in the Hebrew. And then, of course, there was the Tanakh, the Old Testament was written. But it says that God would write his words on people's hearts. So the, the New Covenant is going to be a, a work of grace that God does on the inside that gives people a love for him, gives, him, gives us a love for his words, a desire to listen. That was a big issue, and we're going to talk about it in the next verse. Because if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find the term listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The word here means to listen. Shema. Pay attention. And don't stop up your ears. There's verses like that. So the New Covenant is going to be internal. Yes? Um, in, in Romans 2, where it talks about how the law is written on everyone's heart. The conscience, on the conscience. Okay. Uh, what's, and then it talks about how in the New Covenant, God will write it on our hearts. Like, right. Say, what's the difference? Okay, the difference is this. That Romans 2 is about general revelation. That would be true for all people, not just Christians. And so every person has a conscience that's given by God that's telling them that they're evildoers. All right? Now, that's Romans 2, 14 and 15. Or 4 and 5. Is it 4 and 5? I know it's Romans 2. What yeah, it's in chapter 2. Okay. Um, but one thing that's important to realize, and I've heard preachers get this one wrong, Everything from Romans 1, 2, and the first half of 3 is not talking about people saved by general revelation. It's talking about people condemned by it. Right? That God gave his law, they broke that. God showed himself in the glory of the heavens. They didn't pay attention to that. God spoke to them through their conscience. They sinned against that. And then it concludes with this litany of uh, sin in Romans 3, where it says, you know, their feet have gone astray, using parts of the human anatomy, all of which are sinful, their lips, their feet, everything about, and then it says, none seek after God, there's none righteous. So, the conscience is general revelation, and it's not saving. It doesn't say if somebody follows their conscience, they'll be saved. It says that they have a conscience, and they sinned against it, so they're without excuse. So, that would also... uh indicate the people who never heard the gospel are nevertheless condemned because they've still sinned against even just the sunset if they didn't come to God. All right? Now, there are, there are some people who teach that if somebody never heard, then they're, they get a, they're, they're never going to be judged. But if people really believe that, it would be the last thing you want to do is send out missionaries because they need to be condemning people. You know, if they're saved by not hearing, then the best thing you do is leave them not hearing. So, so that, that, that theory just doesn't make any sense. Yes, Steve? If you go back to the passage in Jeremiah 31, you had a covenant that God made with Abraham before that mountain, concerning that you have a people and descendants which came about when he had a the miraculous son from the birth of Isaac, and that his people would come back to the land which came about, they came out of Egypt, that through him all the world would be blessed. But here it talks about the next phase in that covenant where God is leading the people into that land, fulfilling the promises with Abraham. He said, if you do this, and if you do that, and if you do this, and if you do that, then I'll never cast you out of it and have your inheritance. And that was a kind of a, a salvation in a tangible way, staying in that land. He's talking now about carrying that a step further so the covenant and the inheritance we have is not just a physical land, a tangible country, but an intangible country, an inheritance of eternal life that we have that's coming to us through the blood of Jesus and that we participate in. Right. And everything about this new covenant is superior, according to Hebrews. In fact, we've had a whole list of what's better, you know, a better house than Moses had. Instead of tablets of stone, we have it on yeah. our heart, which is... Better sacrifice, better everything. Yes, all right, let's, let's keep going here. I'm going to quote Lane. He says this, The earlier description alludes to the whole people of God, the eschatological assembly in its ultimate and complete state, gathered for the encounter with God by those uh, to whom reference is made in verse 23b. Okay, we're still in 23 here. The aggregate of faithful men and women who have already died and faced their judgment 
having been perfected on the ground of Jesus' high priestly offering. And then he goes on and says this, In two parallel clauses, the writer finally presents the ground and reason for the festal gathering on Mount Zion. He introduces Jesus, mediator of the new covenant, and alludes graphically to his sacrificial death by which the eschatological final covenant was sealed and eternal redemption secured for his people. By pointing to Jesus in his office as mediator of a better, more effective covenant, the writer provides the balancing contrast to Moses, mediator of the old covenant, terrified and trembling at the presence of God, as we saw in verse 21. So we have more ways in which this new covenant is superior. And this is very important. You know, there's a trend. Somebody here handed me a book for my research. It was written by a guy over in St. Paul who's a Judaizer. And it's just just totally rejecting what's taught in Hebrews. Who's going to go back to Torah only and claim that you have to go back to the Jewish ways in order to be saved. This is horrible, horrible Heresy. This is apostasy. This is um, this is not this is not no small thing. And um, we need to learn what it says in Hebrews. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something in people that makes them want to do that. That somehow the Jewish system looks more appealing than just being Christian and walking by faith. And um, well, I think that Ryan and I are probably going to. Right on this, when he get, he's going to graduate from seminary in June, and so I'm going to get him back doing more writing. And we, and Ryan called me. He says we need to write about this Judaizing thing. He he ran into one, it debated him for two hours. Yeah, at, at somebody at a birthday party, and they they just say no, we got to do this. <laughs> it was actually a game uh, with a Castro kid's birthday party, and he debates a Judaizer. Yes. <laughs> trotting on the blood of the lamb. How dare him? Well, let's get back to the point. Man is without excuse. He is going to go to hell. Look what he's done in the Tower of Babel. Look at the old covenant. He's worshipped every god, the stars in the heavens, every god there ever was since the very beginning. He's without excuse. He will be damned without putting his faith in Jesus Christ. He's trotting on the blood today. And the new god today is himself on the throne. Lovers of self. People don't get through their head that people are going to go to hell. They are Without excuse, my daughter, my mother, whoever, they are not going to trot on the blood, like he said, this guy from St. Paul, mocking the new covenant blood. Yeah, it's very no serious. It's very serious. Amen. <laughs> I'm going to quote some more William Lane here. The comparison of the latter half of verse 24b presupposes the factor of the violent death of an innocent person. The allusion to the blood of Abel is recognizably a reference to his death. Cain attacked his brother and killed him. According to Genesis 4, 10 through 12, the blood of Abel cries out to God for the avenging of his murder. And this motif is frequently echoed in later Jewish tradition. So the, then he goes on and says this, the ratification of the new covenant on the ground of Jesus' death secured for the church the promised blessings attached to that covenant. It is to this gracious provision of God for his people at the in the present time, that the sprinkled blood continues to speak more effectively than the blood of Abel. So when we, for example, read the words in church history, they're called the words of institution. But when we have communion, we are recognizing the fact that the blood of Jesus, shed once for all, continues to speak. And it continues to tell us that we're right with God. It continues to tell us that we have these covenant promises. And the covenant needs a mediator, and the mediator is Jesus. And there's no way to bypass that. And anybody that tries to bypass the mediator is um, foolhardy. And they would be as foolhardy as somebody running into the holiest place under the old covenant without following the prescriptions. If somebody, what happened if you went in there? You would die instantly. But we have people today who think that they can bypass Jesus and go to God. I, for example, wrote an article about this book called The God Chasers by a guy named Tommy Tenney. And he is thinking he can somehow call down the presence of God 
without going through the Gospel. He claimed that they had a revival that saved all these people in this one church and there was not a word preached. Well, they don't know. Who, how do they know? There's no Gospel. You know, so he has this direct, unmediated presence of God that he thinks he can call down. The Bible, that is foolish. And you don't know, you can't know as God, and you may very well be bringing damnation on people rather than salvation. Bill? Yeah, history shows that uh, the revivals that uh, are called down by guys like Penny have been going on for centuries. They're not really revivals, uh, it's a. Uh, combination of emotionalism. His definition of revival is not reviving the Christ or or God-man. It's another gospel, another Christ, and another spirit. Because it's similar to to an act of God, he calls it God. Yeah, they're, they're, they're judging that it's from God based on experiences, feelings, uh, things that are happening, people um, having some sort of a um, ex- uh, ecstatic religious experience. You could, uh, you could, yeah, exactly. But see, the only way you can judge, and we've talked about this a lot. I talked about it at the Faith at Risk conference. The only way you can judge spirits is by whether they confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Amen. And so you can't have that. That's you know. Oh, by the way, my rebuttal to that lady is in the paper out here. Remember that lady said that I was scary because I was um, disagreeing with Rick Warren, and and I probably want to shut up not only Rick Warren but Robert Schuler and Joel Olstein. That was in the that was, somebody wrote that into the Twin City Christian. So I wrote a rebuttal and they published it. And I said, no, I'm not trying to shut anybody up. I'm trying to tell people how that they can find forgiveness of sins. Uh, and you're not going to find it through these guys' message. They're not telling you the gospel. That's the problem. Um, so, so thankfully they published a rebuttal. But, they, but see, they, she was questioning my use of First John four. But that's what the problem is. They won't take it literally. People refuse to read First John four one through five and actually believe it literally for what it says. That any spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. Amen. Because there's many false prophets gone out into the world. Now, this, I don't know when I saw that. I mean, I gotta admit that for years I just kind of read that and thought, well, it must be about Gnostics or something. I mean, what I failed to do for years was to literally apply that to any situation. And when I decided that, no, that's really the case, and we're going to write an article about it. Um, uh, Keith does all the work, and then I'm just going to write the article and put my name on it. <laughs> but, but, but Keith and I have been doing this over the phone, because uh, he's been all over the world. And we're, we're looking for all of the places where it says the Holy Spirit came upon somebody and they spoke. All right? And I'm going to show you some today in my sermon. And Luke acts is very strong that way. The Holy Spirit comes upon um, Zacharias, and he speaks about Christ and messianic salvation. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter, and he preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples on Pentecost, and they preach the gospel. See, I, I, I think I'm thinking about when I was at North Central Bible College, and we were taught the Second Blessing doctrine. We, we would, we would look at this and say, okay, the Holy Spirit came upon these people here and they spoke in tongues. And then they came on people here and they spoke in tongues. So that must be what happens if the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you speak in tongues. But they were only looking at two or three out of about 50 cases. And if you go to every single case and look for the commonalities, all right, you find that the thing, what, what they all have in common, in some cases people spoke in tongues, in other cases, not. But what they had in common was when the Holy Spirit came upon people, the gospel went to somebody. Amen. Um, Peter preached it. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Acts, what did Peter say in Acts 1.8? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be what? My witnesses. What did Jesus say in... Je- I did it, Dick. 
You know what? Last week I didn't do it. I had everybody tell me not to. And I had my heavy Bible on. My arm was getting tired. I think I need to do more curls with my waist. Yeah, Dick told me I do this. And it makes you feel like you're being hid from over here. But it's really a balancing thing. It's heavy when you're holding something like this. It seems... Well, I know, but see, I try to get close to people so I can pick up what they say, because then I have to, I'll try to put it on here. Okay, um, what does it say in John? It, it's, it's amazing what you can see in the Bible if you just start believing things literally that you tend to gloss over. Amen. What did Jesus say? When he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will speak of me. That's right. All right? Uh, and so, I'm, and this is going to be the article. Um, that I'm going to write about, is that you just go case after case after case after case. At the healing of the, at the gate beautiful, Peter got up and it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, he preached Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, he preached Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit, and so Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would testify about Christ. Luke Acts just gives examples of the Holy Spirit coming on people and they, and they speak about Christ. And the test in 1 John 4 about testing the spirits, whether it's the Holy Spirit or not the Holy Spirit, has to do with confessing Christ. Amen. Now, Jesus Christ come in the flesh doesn't just mean utter that phrase if somebody puts a gun to your head. It has to... Jesus Christ come in the flesh is John's shorthand way of just saying the incarnation and all that it implies. Amen. So Jesus Christ come in the flesh is this, that Jesus pre-existed. John 1 says so. Amen. That Jesus came in, in the flesh, was born of the Virgin, and lived fully human, fully God on the face of the earth. Amen. That's part, that's the doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus was sinless. It's part of what it means that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That Jesus died for sins. Remember, 1 John 1 talked about the reality of the personal work of Christ in a fellowship because we have because of the blood atonement. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh means he was raised from the dead bodily and ascended bodily into heaven. So that's basic doctrine is what that means. Now, what the Bible consistently is telling us, and we just take this literally, and that's all we're going to do, just take literally what it says, is that how we know, how do you know somebody is anointed by the Holy Spirit? Remember it talks about the Antichrist, that lady that wrote the letter was asked about that? Well, Antichrist means anti-anointed one, or in other words, is somebody claiming to be anointed. Right? So the Antichrists are anointed ones who claim some special anointing. But how do you know they have this anointing from God? Because remember earlier in John, 1 John 2, it says you all have an anointing. You don't need somebody to teach you. You have an anointing. And so all, the, all Christians are anointed. But these anointed ones, Antichrist, will claim that they're God's men. They claim they're sent from God. They claim they speak for God. They claim the Holy Spirit's working through them. That's what the anointing's about. But they don't confess Jesus Christ uh, consistently in the context where they, they say they're having a revival or they, whatever it may be. And so then you listen to that, and that's all you need to know. <laughs> okay? And so you go to the Tommy Tenney meeting, and you listen. And if he doesn't glorify Jesus Christ with his words, he's not from God. Now, you put Rick Warren on CNN, and listen. We, we did a radio show on this yesterday. Uh, Brian, Flynn, Brian Flynn and I are going to do a radio series based on my book. And, and so we were talking about this. Put, put Brian or put uh, Rick Warren on, on CNN, uh, United Nations, wherever, and listen. Just turn it on. 2020, um, Larry King Live. Just turn it on. And what does he say? The Holy Spirit's working through him. So he says, "I'm going to solve the world's problems. I'm going to. I, I sold 30 million bucks. I, I'm going to solve. I'm going to get peace in Rwanda between the tribes. I'm going to. But he doesn't say anything about Jesus Christ. There's no, he doesn't talk about Christ. The Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will speak about me, Jesus said. And you will be so, uh, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, how do you know somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit? They, yeah, they're, they're, the, the gospel is on their lips there. They can't wait to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's the best test that there is. 
They maybe will speak in tongues, but they'll for sure talk about Jesus. <laughs> do, you see, do you see my point? Okay, yes. When we go and we talk about spiritual guidance and we look for spiritual guidance and look to see what the spirits are telling us, what the Spirit of God is telling us, we know when the Spirit of God is giving us guidance when it proclaims the gospel because that is the guidance that he's given for the salvation of the world. Amen. And anybody proclaiming another kind of guidance or guiding you into something deeper or more or better or more wonderful or with more feelings or with more miracles or whatever it is, that's not the guidance of the Spirit because the guidance of the Spirit was given to us once and for all and it consists of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh defined in the Scriptures of God. Yeah, amen. So that is, we're we're very on firm ground to take that First John 4 literally. <laughs> okay? And that's how you tell. And that's how you tell. If, you, if you're interested, if you got internet access, I wrote a thing for Worldview Weekend on, on the Azusa Street revival. Did anybody see that? I was interviewed on Southwest Radio about that article. It's a little bitty article, and I told about my going to North Central Bible College and what the Pentecostals were like in 1970. And they, you know what was, you know what? It was from God. You know why? Because they kept preaching the gospel. My pastor preached the gospel. Reverend Hilton Griswold in Ames, Iowa, preached the gospel every single Sunday. My teachers told me to stick in the Bible, stay with what it says here, and don't go off on any tangents. And that was at a Pentecostal Bible college. Well, guess what they got now at Azusa Street? Kenneth Copeland, Frederick Price, uh, Benny Hinn, um, T.D. Jakes, Oneness, which which they fought, I was warned against. Bill Hammond, the the super apostle, the apostles hyphen prophet hyphen bishop hyphen. You know, I I don't know if he's a Monsignor yet or or a cardinal or whatever. And and we were warned. We were warned. No, 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 no. Don't don't nothing like that. Uh, Reverend uh, John Phillips uh, said no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, Yangi Cho, the fourth dimension guy. And so I, I wrote a thing saying, what happened? How Somebody owes somebody an apology. Because I was warned against these things when I was in a Pentecostal Bible college, and now they bring them in the front door. Somebody owes somebody an apology. Either my teachers were wrong to warn me, or these people today are wrong to let the wolves in. And I pointed them to Oral Steinkamp if they wanted to write him and ask him about what it's supposed to be like. So uh, it was a joy to, to write that little thing. I kind of like this worldview weekend. It's finding me some new people to write to. Yes, Bill. Well, what's really bizarre about the Azusa uh, deal is Charles Crabtree, the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. No, Trask. Pardon? Thomas Trask is his name. Trask. Trask? Yeah, Trask. Okay, I saw a guy that... Well, they have crab trees in, in, in there. Well, I don't know, but I didn't see that name, though. Anyways, so he's giving a, a video interview telling people to go to this thing right alongside Bill Hammond. And Hammond is violating everything that the uh, Assemblies of God condemned the latter rain for. I know. I know. I know. I can't get it. Yes, uh, Reve. I think the change happened though in the night when in the nineties when the Pensacola thing came. Our, I think our the the assemblies of God didn't take a stand against it at that point, and actually many of the pastors were flocking down there because they were looking for a new thing to because the old gospel wasn't working anymore, and that's where like a mass of switches happened in the whole because they opened the door because of the Pensacola. Because I, yeah, I, I, I could, I'd have to say that when I was everywhere I went, when it, the Parkview Assembly, um, first assembly in Ames, Iowa, with Hilton Griswold, he was a great, he was a great guy, you know, Blackwood uh, piano player. Um, the teachers at Bible College, most of the most of the people that come to chapel, but not always, the missionaries were the best. I thought we continually heard the gospel. And they were interested in glorifying Jesus Christ. And they, they, they passed the test of 1 John 4, very, the flying colors. But that's not what it's about today. And it's really sad. 
It's very sad. But it isn't just the Assemblies of God. It's Baptist E Free. I got I got a call from Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, uh, some of their churches uh, across the board. Everything we knew to be conservative, gospel-oriented denominations across the board are all losing it. I just got an email from Bruce Davidson, whose daughter came to church here while she attended. A, uh, Sarah came here. And Bruce has done some writing for theological journals. He's a missionary that teaches in Japan. Rock-solid, godly Christian man who emailed me yesterday. And he says, I don't know what to do anymore. He says, we were in another church that had gone into all this false teaching. And so we left and we found this one. And, and, and he said, now this church, which was some sort of a Baptist church, was bringing in Henry Nguyen material. Henry Nguyen is a homosexual mentally unstable, mystical Catholic. Now, why would a gospel... You know, the, the, un, the, the, the lack of discernment is just coming, is crucial and critical. And so, uh, by, the reason I mentioned that, that little thing in the paper is that I, I think that there, it's, it's actually so simple that uh, people can't believe it's that simple. All right? The first John 4, 1 through 5 is literally true. Amen. And it's simple. And I'll tell you why it's simple. Because the spiritual world is complex. And if we have to discern spirits by trying to go into their realm, okay, we shall be out of our element and we will be deceived. Amen. And what Brian Flynn and I are saying, and we're going to go do a little thing on that for another church that just that just came to their senses and decided to push this stuff out of their church, uh, is that these? it's not that you might be deceived, it's that you will be deceived. And the only question is what deception you're going to end up in. The, 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 these spirits are good at what they do. And I'll tell you what they do from my years of research on this. They give people an experience that they know the person will think is from God. Whatever you're likely to think is from God, that's the experience you get. Now, if you're Roman Catholic, Mary will appear and talk to you. If you heard Jan's show on that with that tetlo. Yes? There's no discernment against those spirits unless you know the Word of God. Simple. That's what, that's what the, all these people are running into problems because they don't know the Word of God. Simple. And where are they going to learn the Word of God? <laughs> Teach it. Yep. Yep. Amen. Well, you're helping. Sam's helping me right now do some research on this, uh, further on this theophastics. It's just unbelievable it's, uh, the deception of it. Okay, so what we need to do is stick with the the simple gospel Amen. that Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, that God, whatever this book I've been reading, I got to show it to you. We're, we we ordered 25 of them, and I and I and we're going to sell it. We'll give you a deal. All right. And, it, and it's um, whatever happened to the gospel of grace, James Montgomery Boyce. Um, it just, I just touched my heart reading this, knowing that the guy was dying of cancer when he wrote it. And he doesn't talk about himself in there. He doesn't talk about being sick or he, he talks about battles that he had over the years when he worked with Francis Schaeffer in the 70s fighting the battle about the inerrancy of Scripture. But he says nowadays... The inerrancy doesn't matter because they don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay? You know, so, so all the evangelicals will all put in their statement of faith, I believe in inerrancy. But what, what good is an inerrant Bible that nobody ever preaches out of? All right. Hebrews 12.24 It speaks better than the blood of Abel. Here's what William Lane says about this. What the writer affirms in 11.4 is that Abel's faith <coughs> continues to speak to us through the written record of his action in Scripture, was exhibits the exemplary character of his offering. Similar in 1224b, the references to what the blood of Abel has to say to us through the written record concerning his death in Scripture, which declares that it was unable to effect reconciliation. Christ's blood accomplishes what Abel's blood could not achieve. It is in this sense that it speaks more effectively of accomplished redemption and reconciliation. It speaks in the idiom of grace rather than of vengeance. It speaks of Jesus' adequacy in securing full salvation for all who draw near to God through Him. 
It declares that the way into the heavenly sanctuary is open so that God may be approached now through faith. Ultimately, the people of God will enter His immediate presence. The voice that speaks at Zion, in sharp contrast to the frightening sound of words at Sinai, 12:19, provides a strong incentive for Christians to hold fast their confession without wavering, Hebrews 3 and verse 6. Now, this, this is so delightful to me. This guy I've been quoting from, William Lane, he's one of the most brilliant learned scholars of the New Testament anywhere. And this is, I'm just giving you the little part. Most of this is written in Greek and it's extremely, you know, high level theology. But this is as it should be. In other words, the more advanced and the more you know and the more brilliant you are, if you're truly in love with Jesus Christ, you're still going back to the blood atonement and the gospel. Amen. Okay, whether you're just a brand new Christian and you only had a junior high education, or whether you've got two PhDs and you can read Latin, Greek, German, and, and everything else, it still comes back to the same thing. The simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what evangelicalism was grounded in for, for a century. And it's no longer, and I don't know what will happen, but I think we need to pray for a true revival, which can only come through a revived proclamation of gospel truth and a revived hunger for the things of God and a revived desire to learn the scriptures. And it isn't about people stacked up like cordwood. Is the, I was just, <laughs> I reread the, what, <laughs> no, no, that was, that's what they said at uh, the original Azusa Street. Um, and I, I reread the, the, my history book that I had at North Central Bible College because I knew I was going to be interviewed by these guys on the Southwest radio and I didn't want to be a dummy. So, one thing about getting on the radio will make you study is who wants to go out and have everybody know how dumb you are? <laughs> so I was reading that, and, and yeah, they had stories of people stacked up like cordwood, but it wasn't all not from God. I should have brought it down. It was, uh, it was written in 1971, the history of the Pentecostal movement. But you know what I found about the original Azusa Street? There was a guy named Bartleman or something that came. And there was a whole paragraph in there about there was a quote of what he said. He came to the Azusa Street and all this stuff was going on about the Holy Spirit. And as Bartleman said, the Bible says that he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will speak about Jesus Christ. Amen. And, and the Holy Spirit doesn't come to glorify the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to glorify Jesus Christ. Amen. And this Bartleman spoke to the... This was quoted in the History of the Assemblies of God book. This Bartleman preached Jesus Christ to the people at Azusa Street and said, that's what this is about if it's from God. Amen. And so there you go. <laughs> so there may have been some light there. you know. Maybe it was a mixed thing that was going on in 1906 there. I don't know. But what it, what it ended up being, at least in the Assemblies of God, in the, they, they rejected oneness, they rejected apostles and prophets, and they preached the gospel. So that's what it's supposed to be about. And uh, that's that's what I'm excited about. Let's see here what else we got left. Oh, verses. <laughs> My goodness. See, you read your verse. You started this whole thing. He read, he read the verse about the new covenant. Matthew 23:35. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Yes, Matthew 23. Jesus is indicting the leadership that was rejecting him and said that they're blood guilty for all of the blood that was ever shed in the history of the nation. <clears throat> Boy, that's strong words, isn't it? But it starts with the blood of Abel, then it goes on. All the martyrs, there's this idea of corporate solidarity that the Jews believe in. Okay, Matthew 26:28. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Okay, Jesus at, at uh, Last Supper. Were you here last night? Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? That is a great way to learn about what Passover is all about. With the blood of the covenant. Okay, now we have uh, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. All right, that, that mediator thing is important. We have, we've been talking about that, haven't we, Keith? You got. You have to have a mediator. Amen. And otherwise, you die. 
Yeah, otherwise you die. The only way we can come to God without dying is through a mediator. And the mediator is Christ. There's only one, and it's Christ. And so this idea, uh, in our past, we knew people teaching this Father's love doctrine. And they claimed that they could give you direct access to the Father's love through a man. They could impart, yeah, they could impart the Father's love directly. And thank God I had been to Bible college because when that came into our group in the late 70s, I, I knew it was wrong. I'm not saying I didn't have a lot of things that I believed that weren't correct at that moment, but I knew that was wrong right up front because the Bible says what we just read. There's one mediator. There's only one way to come to the Father, and that's through Christ. And so this guy that was saying, well, he's had this way to directly give you the Father's love. No, absolutely not. Well, then I got sent to Martinsville as punishment for saying that. <laughs> I had a bad attitude. It's amazing we're still here. <laughs> one Peter, one two. According to, oh, let's see here, should I back up? First Peter, one two. Um, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours. Wow. Wow. So, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, to, to, to sanctification of the Spirit? Is that what it says? To obey Jesus Christ. To obey Jesus Christ. Actually, unto obedience. By the sanctifying of the Spirit. So there again, if you start thinking about this a paradigm, if I can use that word, that we're, we're describing this theological principle, would be the Holy Spirit there does what? He leads you to the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit always is speaking about Christ, convicting people about Christ, and giving us a love for Christ, and is Christ-centered. Yes? I was going to just going to say the hardest part for each is the obedience part of it, where people do not want to obey what Jesus said. Well, that introduces the next verse that we'll, uh, we're not, we don't have time, but let me read it, and then next week we'll talk about it. Because that's just what she just said. No, not next week. Next week's Easter. Two weeks from now. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. So there it is. So you just said. See to it, you do not refuse him of speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, how much less will we escape if we turn away from him who warns from heaven? So Jesus is still speaking through his word, and we better listen to Jesus. Okay, thank you.